0: So Mark uh, chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Verse 18, it says, then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And then I got a hypothetical question, verse 20. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. And the second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since, she married, uh, she, since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, we're going to pause on his reply because first we've got to figure out why in the world would they ask Jesus this kind of strange question? Uh, This is the third of five different groups of people come to Jesus and Mark puts them all together because he wants us to know uh, Jesus has authority over everybody. So some of the teachers of the law come to Jesus and say, by what authority are you doing all these things? And then Jesus shows by a parable, he has all authority. A couple of weeks ago, people asked a tax question. Jesus, should we pay the tax to Caesar? And Jesus shows he is wise, he has authority, and he bypasses their question. Well, this is another one. Uh, but the question is, who are the Sadducees? Um, there are lots of, like there are lots of churches today, uh, that uh, you maybe heard of the, a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church, all follow Jesus, but they have some unique characteristics. And so in the same way in the first century, in Judaism, they all didn't agree on everything. And so you had Pharisees and then you had Sadducees. Now, what did they believe? We don't know much because they were obliterated a little bit after the time of Jesus, all the Sadducees uh, ended and they didn't write a lot. But what we do know is that they held to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also called the Pentateuch, if you ever want to sound fancy. And these are the books of Moses. And so when they read scriptures, if it was in the first five books, they believed it, they held on to it. But there were more, if you read your Old Testament also, knows the Hebrew scriptures, there are more than five books. So, what about the prophets? What about Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes? Because they came after Moses, they weren't sure. So, if it's not in the first five books of the Bible, they don't hold it as ultimate authority. And that's going to come into play with their question. Now, what Mark tells us is most important. Is another thing is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. Verse 18. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus. Now what does that mean? It means you live, you die, it's over. That's it. It sounds very Portland. I know, right? You get one life, you're alive, right? Yeah. And when you're gone, it's over. So there is no afterlife per se, there is no resurrection, there's no final judgment. You live, and if you're faithful to God, great. And if you're not, well, it's over. And that's what, that was their conviction. Now, why? You say, like that sounds strange. Why would they come to that conviction? Well, there's nothing about the resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. It isn't till the prophets. It's like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and you see some of it in the Psalms. It's not till later in the story of the scriptures that we get this idea that there'll be a raising at the end of life. And so the Sadducees are like, well, they were skeptical. Now, the Sadducees are one group. The biggest group, the most influential at the time of Jesus, are the Pharisees. The Pharisees agree in all five books of Moses, sure, but they take all of Scripture as authoritative. On top of that, they add the oral law, the Mishnah. So they have this huge pool of thought to go with, and they totally believe in the resurrection at the end of life and judgment. So at the end of the age, not not when you die, when you die, you're gone for a while, but at the end of all time, God will deal justly and he will rise all to life, some to judgment and some to be with him. So you have this competition. So the question you need to know is not about a lady and it's not about marriage. The question is whose side is Jesus on? By the time of the first century, most Jews did believe in a resurrection. They believed in the life to come. Most followed the Pharisees' line of thinking. So the Sadducees come to Jesus with a trap to see, are you with the popular crowd or are you with us who speak the truth? Now the question. So what is this question all about? Verse 19. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us So notice they're quoting from the first five books. Moses wrote, if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow. That is the question. So if he does this, what happens in this supposed resurrection? Now, this seems strange to us. So I married Carmen, but if if I died before we had kids, my younger brother, Raphael, would marry Carmen my wife and have children even if he's married he would also take on my wife does that not sound strange? Are you, you're okay with this? you're like oh dude this is awesome anyway <laughs> well hold your place here um, go to the left to, let's, go to, let's see the quote Deuteronomy um, go to Deuteronomy 25 and I want you to see this because notice it's in the first five books so that's what the Sadducees quote Deuteronomy 25, and we're going to start in verse 5. What is this about? Because this is intriguing, and someone gets spit on and slapped at the end. So this is really cool. Anyway, you're going to love it. Deuteronomy 25, uh, verse 5. It says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her, and notice, and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. So this was a responsibility. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So I just want you to see this. This isn't strange. This is a way for the family line to continue. In the first century or in earlier centuries, you gotta remember there are rights and laws now, but back in the day, a woman left alone was vulnerable and unprotected. And so a woman is safe in two places. She's safe under the care of her father. So you didn't leave and get your own apartment before you got married. You stayed with your father. He was your protector. And then you were also safe in the house of your husband. He was your protector. So this isn't chauvinism. This is actually love. That you take care of ladies. You don't let them get abused. And so it was a family responsibility. It is the responsibility of the brother of the deceased man to take this woman and protect her. And in doing that, property and, and finances go down from father to son. So they didn't have a child. So who's going to take on the family inheritance? What about the family farm? What about the family equipment? All of that needs protection. So the brother is to step in. It's an act of service and love. And to honor his brother by having a child. And this child takes on the, the, the deceased father's name. And their heritage Continues. So this is not a negative thing. It's a responsibility. Now, what happens if my younger brother, hypothetically, in my case, says, No way, don't like Carmen, she's on her own? What do we do? Verse 7. I had Jonah, so I have an heir, so it's not an issue for me. Um, (laughs) Verse 7. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, which is bad, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He's refusing to do what's right. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. And if he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her. His brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders. I love this part. Take off one of his sandals. Spit in his face and say, This is what is done to a man who will not up, uh, build up his brother's family line, and that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Scandal. What is the deal with like flip flops and spitting? This is, uh, it, it sounds strange to us. But this is the ultimate insult. A sandal was like a sign of a legal contract. And so in Ruth, if you read Ruth, in the end when there's a financial transaction, it's the taking off of a sandal in front of the elders. Like you don't have deeds and all that, but by giving away of a sandal, that's the sign that says we're in agreement and the property is exchanged. So basically it's the ultimate insult. This man and this man's family line does not care about honoring his family responsibility. So you spit in his face and you say, you know what, you're not gonna do what's right, shame on you, no sandal for you. Anyway, well that's a little bit of the background that I thought would be interesting on a Sunday morning. Back to Mark 11 and the, uh, 12 and the real conflict of the story. So uh, this was not um, an issue in the, in, at the time of Jesus. So you got the background, no one debated family responsibility. So uh, this wasn't a hot topic and trying to see if like taxes from two weeks ago were a hot topic. This wasn't a hot topic. You do what's right by your family line. So why the question to Jesus about this woman and who is she gonna be married with in heaven? Like I said, this was a test to see if Jesus is a teacher from God. Verse 29 um, I'm sorry, verse 20, back in Mark chapter 12. Uh, There were seven brothers. The first one married, died without leaving any children. Second one married, also into the third, verse 22. um, None of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So they're they're replaying the law, but verse 23, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Uh, Now, Mark told us earlier, they don't believe in the resurrection. What they're doing is they're making a joke of the resurrection, right? They're making a joke of it. Okay, so if, if seven brothers marry, well, who's gonna be the husband in, in eternity at the resurrection? Because it's, they're, they're trying to catch him in a catch-22. If there's a resurrection, then this woman's been married seven times and seven brothers could be the husband. Obviously, there can't be a resurrection. Because in the Torah, one man, one woman for life is God's ideal. So they're setting up a catch 22. Torah, Moses, I'm sorry, Pentateuch, Moses, first five books, a man should have one wife, but in the resurrection, now she could have multiple husbands. Um, obviously, there's no such thing as a resurrection Jesus. So tell us whose husband is, uh, who's the husband to this woman. They're, they're trying to set him up For failure. Now, Jesus is a master teacher, so notice what he does not do. Uh, Jesus does not get into the discussion. This is a debate amongst the Pharisees who believe there's a resurrection and believe in all of the books in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Sadducees, only the first five. Jesus, which side are you on? Jesus is not going to get into it but he talks about two things, the scriptures and the power of God. So let's just read his response. Verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not in error? So he's not going to get into the debate. He's just going to say, you're wrong. Here's why. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he goes to teach. When the dead rise, notice he didn't say if. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So what Jesus does is he clarifies it without having to say I'm for the Pharisees or I'm with you. I'm a for or against. I'm just calling you out for your error. Um, you're sadly mistaken because you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. What is he saying? He's saying life in the resurrection because he explains what's going to happen. Life in the resurrection is totally unlike life today. So their problem with their question is they were assuming in the resurrection, it's gonna be just like it is right now. So they're asking a question about who's married to the woman because they don't understand that there is life in the now and life in the future and life in in God's future is the same in one sense, but totally different. Just think to the gospels. And Jesus, when he's resurrected, what do the gospel writers tell us? Did his disciples see him? Yes or no? Yeah, 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 they they, they saw him. Did Jesus eat in the resurrection? Yeah. Yeah, so Jesus experiences the resurrection before all of us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first to taste resurrection, the first fruits of what's to come. So what Jesus already experienced, we will experience. But did Jesus walk through walls? Yeah, freaky. All right, okay, so so the resurrection is similar. Jesus is seen, Jesus is walking, but Jesus also rises and ascends into heaven and Jesus walks through a doorway, a wall, and appears to his disciples. So it ain't the same is what I'm saying. Resurrection, life is a whole new category of existence. If you're gonna write down one thing from this morning, other than the the household of the unsandaled, which is way better. Other than that, just know this resurrection life is a whole new category of existence. It is a whole new way of thinking. And so uh, unfortunately, this is all we've got. Jesus doesn't give us any more. Like we want more. So you have all sorts of people speculating what it will, like, will I be buff in the resurrection? Okay, thank you, John, for nodding. Yes, I got, I got a friend here. You know, yes, I will be buff in the resurrection. Um, will I have a ball spot in the resurrection? Will I be able to regrow hair? Will it be like Chia Jose? You know, like, will, 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 okay, in the resurrection, will it be like the young me? Will it be the middle me? Will it be the later me? Which me will it be? It's like a Dr. Seuss rhyme, you know? Who, who will I be in the resurrection? Well, Any answer. Now, again, some of you have been going to church for a long time and you think you have the resurrection figured out. Let me just bring back a little bit of perspective. All we know is resurrection life is a whole new category of existence. It will be like yet unlike what we, we will live forever. Explain that to me. We'll rule, we'll reign, we'll work. Uh, what 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 does it look like to work with no sin involved. With sin is hard toil and labor and stress. We will work without stress. Does that sound like an oxymoron? Right? Think about that. Because we will be with God and there will be perfection again. So it's dissimilar. And so we don't get out a bunch of detail, but what we do get is Jesus's answer to the people who only took the first five books. He doesn't quote Isaiah. He doesn't quote Daniel. He doesn't quote Psalms. What does Jesus do? And I love this. If you are wondering and questioning, here's a good thing about Jesus. Jesus comes to where you're at and he gives you, if you're open to it, truth on your level. So let's just say you believed in one book of the Bible and you didn't believe in the rest of it. Maybe you only believe in the red letters, whatever those are, like in the Gospels. Whatever Jesus said, that's all I take. The rest, I, I, don't, I don't agree with. What Jesus does is he starts where you're at and he takes you to the truth where you're at. Hopefully that you would have a heart that's receptive because what Jesus does is he quotes from Exodus 3. Remember, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what they accept. And so Jesus quotes from Exodus 3 and takes them back to the burning uh, bush. Verse 28. It says, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? Like, you are in error. You're off because you you actually haven't read your Bible, which is pretty much a slam. There's no like, he's not soft peddling it here. You haven't read your Bible. You say you're a PhD in the Pentateuch, but you don't know what it says. And here's what he quotes. Am I, um, how God said to them, I am the God of Abram, I'm the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Everyone in the first century at the time of Jesus believed that God is the God of the living. God's the God of the living. And so here you have a problem. If you read your Bible, Sadducees, you would know that, that God, when coming to Moses, says, I am the God of Abram. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if if they were dead and there was no resurrection, there was no future, then God's promise to them would never come to completion that they would be this people that would be blessed to be a blessing because once they're gone, the promise is over. But no, God's promise to them lasts and endures forever. So you're ignorant of the very thing that you're reading. He's the God and Jesus interprets it. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. They don't know the scriptures, but they also don't know the power of God. So, what they doubted, and this is where Jesus gets into the deeper issue of it, they only believed in these five books of Moses, as if God had stopped speaking. To his people. Now we don't know exactly why they would wouldn't believe Daniel and wouldn't take Isaiah, but they missed the power of God. At the end of Moses, God raised up other uh, spokesmen for him, and these prophets, these writers, King David, who writes the Psalms, and Solomon with the wisdom literature. They they were not just doubting the scriptures, they were doubting the very power of God to communicate to his people, not just for one time period, but for through, throughout all time that God is interested in, in getting in touch with us. So the bigger issue that Jesus addresses is their lack in faith of the power of God to get through to all people at all times. And I don't think they're alone. Um, if we're honest, many of us, we have our own doubts about what God can and can't do, don't we? So let's not slam the Sadducees for a second. We don't belong to their Jewish tribal sect. But have you ever found yourself reading the Bible, like maybe the portions about spitting in the guy's face and taking off his sandal and, and saying, ah, can that like really be legit? Have you ever looked at a passage of scripture and wondered, can this really be true. Or ever uh, the miracle stories. Think of all the great things that God has done that are listed here. Water, parts, and people walk through on dry land. Dead people rise to life. Uh, In battle, the sun stays full for a day. The moon never comes up. God extends a day and keeps the sun out so that the army can win the victory. You, You look at all these things and at times we all begin to wonder can this be Real. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the issue for the Sadducees, and he gets to the heart issue for us living thousands of years later. If we're going to stay on track and we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to honor him with our lives, Jesus gives at least two these aren't the only, but this morning we're looking at this text two little guardrails to evaluate your life to see are you living as a follower of Jesus? in the right direction. Are you going on the right path? And Jesus gives the two guardrails, the scriptures on the one hand, and then the power of God. Let's just, let's just think about them in turn. The scriptures. Now they're off because they misread the Bible. They only read part of it. So of course they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they didn't read the rest of what God had said. They were selective. Ever found yourself there? Isn't it convenient to read the passages that agree with my own lifestyle, right? Why read the parts of the Bible that don't fit in line with what I know to be true? And so let's not accuse the Sadducees. Let's admit at times we take some of the Bible more uh, confidently and some that contradict what we think or we want to do, we don't high hold as with as much authority. Uh, I wanna throw one last verse at you. You can hold your spot here. As a matter of fact, we won't go back to to Mark 12. Go to the right in your Bible. One other passage, 2 Timothy. Here's a trick. If you're going to the right, there's a bunch of T's in a row. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. So if you see a T, it's around there. 2 Timothy 3, where do we land with the scriptures, and the power of God. 2 Timothy 3, and I want you to see this because um, this is like an encouragement from a leader in the church to a younger leader in the church about life, hard times, and what you should do. And if you're alive and trying to follow Jesus, you will hit hard times. And so this is, this is like a, a seasoned leader who had been beaten for his faith, put in prison for his faith, shipwrecked, trying to get the gospel of Jesus out. There's, there's no better example of someone who knows what he's talking about. So Paul says to his young in, a son in the faith, Timothy, I want to start in verse 10. It says, uh, and this is speaking to Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. Persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me? And then he lists off. In Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So sometimes when my life experience doesn't match up with what I see in the Bible, like God loves me and I don't feel loved, God's going to care for me and I'm in need, what do you do when your life experience doesn't seem to line up with what God has supposedly said? You, you realize those who are in Christ Jesus who want to live a godly life are going to be persecuted. Verse 13. While evildoers and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the bad guys do win in, in our world and those who try to live a godly life sometimes seemingly lose. What do you do? But, verse 14, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. So Timothy, keep growing. Now he is already a leader in a local church. So he's not a novice, he's not a newbie. But, but a wise person says to a, a young leader, you don't know it all. Timothy, there's more for you To grow, and I think we just need to pause for a second and take that as a refreshing reminder. If you've been following Jesus for 15 years, let me just throw this out there as a suggestion: you have at least 500 years of learning left in front of you. Nobody arrives. Nobody knows it all. Even I'm going to put him on the spot. Jim Williams, Jaime Minong, has translated the entire. Bible from English into Spanish with a team. He had a few people helping him, I'm sure. But word by word has worked through the entire Bible and an entire study Bible. Took 10 years, 12 years? 10 10 years, a decade. Yet I think if you were to ask Jim, he would say, I'm still growing. I still have something to learn. So growth is about admitting, I know this much, but I want to know more. Verse 15. And how, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So so he also says, to Timothy, you've been at this a long time. How many of you started going to church of some sort before the age of 13? Before the age of 13, just raise your hand. Wow, that's okay. I'm gonna say the majority of us have been in it for a long time. God's good encouragement to you is from infancy, you've been given the privilege to learn the way of salvation. That's a privilege. So he reminds Timothy, you have the privilege that other people don't have. I meet lots of people. And let me tell you, if the first time you hear about Jesus, you're already 35, married, couple of kids, stressed out, lots of brokenness, relational challenges, worldview that is so far from God's design, it's way harder to go the way of Jesus if you're starting at 35 and have no background in the things of God. So the majority of us have not had that. We've been blessed. But let's not take that blessing and throw it away. Because the challenge of growing up in church and being exposed to the scriptures is we become numb to them. They're no longer... You know, when you first see the movie that you now love, you know, like, oh, it was so awesome. I can't wait to see it. So you pay to go to the movie theater again to see the same thing. How many of you have done that? I know I have. Like, why did I pay as much? Why did I not wait till Netflix? I mean, like, but I was just so excited about this movie. I'm willing to pay to see it again because it's so good. And it's good the second time, but it's not as good as the, especially if there's like a plot and a cliffhanger. And then you buy the Blu-ray or DVD or whatever version, and then you watch it 35 times. And then you start singing the songs. And then, you, and then, and then it just stays on the shelf and you never look at it again, right? Because after a while, anything gets old and the song that was so brilliant and just touched your soul, it's like no longer there a year from now. Can that happen with the scriptures for us? The answer is Yes. So we need to be careful. Paul's charge to Timothy is watch out. And Jesus to the Sadducees is like, you guys technically know the Bible. You technically have read, but you don't get the heart. You don't understand the implications of it. And that's why your life is off. Let me say it the obvious. What you think and believe will drive the way you live. Right? If you think and believe that you can break the speed limit with a cop on the end of the road that you see and that you won't get a ticket, just, just please do it. Wait, see a cop at the end of the road and floor it because I believe I, I am not going to get a ticket. No, I believe I'm not going to get a ticket. And when they pull you over, you can blame me, but you're going to get the ticket. What you believe and think, well, if you, well I'm not going to get a ticket. That law doesn't apply to me. And then you realize, oh, wow, the law does apply to you. In the same way, when we look at the scriptures, let's just, let's just remind ourselves that they're meant for our good. And as the scriptures change the way I think about God, about myself, about the world, about the future, about the now, it will shape the way I live. So the Sadducees lived a certain way. They were the wealthiest. They were the chief priests, they were the top um, movers and shakers in the city, and they lived a certain lifestyle based on what they believed. You live, you die, that's it. And if you hold that philosophy, which many people do, it will impact the way that you go about day-to-day living. But what if you're wrong? What if there is a resurrection? What if there is a judgment to come? What if everything God has said is legit, and you're off, and he's right, then it ought to, when you hear that, it ought to cause you to humble yourself and to do what Paul tells to Timothy, verse 16, the famous one. All scripture is, God breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so God has given us, what I often take for granted for my good. Paul Timothy, every bit of it is useful. Teaching, correcting, training, equipping, getting you ready to be useful to God. And so let's think about, as we kind of land the plane and think about what this conversation with the Sadducees, what does it have to do with me? Tomorrow morning when I wake up, two guardrails, the scriptures and the power of God. Let's, let's deal with that first one. Um, Let me give you some practical suggestions. If the scriptures are useful and profitable, number one, uh, we ought to read the scriptures daily. Now here comes the guilt trip. Have you been reading the Bible? The majority of us in this room, let me just throw it out there. I know this. The majority of the people in this room, friends here, and I love you all, are not reading the Bible consistently. I'm not slamming anybody. I just know it for a fact because when you ask one-on-one in smaller groups, it usually comes up. Now that is not meant to be a guilt trip to say, if you haven't read the Bible, Jesus doesn't love you. But it is meant to, that's in, that lifestyle, what I believe impacts the way I live. If I believe that the scriptures are profitable, if I believe that I'm hungry in the morning and when I'm hungry, I ought to feed myself. And if I don't eat for three or four days, you do not want, I am the worst faster in the world because I fall out of love with God and mad at everybody else. Because if I don't eat for a couple of days, argh, I'm just, so I got to be careful when I fast that I'm like cognizant that I'm, I could hurt people. Because my body says, you need to eat. And for the follower of Jesus, the scriptures are meant for our good. So it's not a guilt trip. If you're a Christian, you should be reading your Bible every day. No, it's if you're a follower of Jesus, God has something for you every day. And so what do I do? Hyper simple. I, I use an app, and if this helps you, let it help you. I use Version. You could download it for free. Every translation that you want to read, want to read in Chinese, go for it. It's there. Version, And I, I use a Bible reading plan. If I don't have a Bible reading plan, I do not read consistently. I don't. And so I'm no more spiritual than anybody else. I need me a plan. If I run, I use the Nike running app because I am hyper competitive. And if I see you ran yesterday, it gets me out there, put the shoes on and I run. I know what I need. I need a plan. Maybe you need a plan. I use a discipleship journal one. You can click it right on there. It gives you a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament. You press the button and it shows a little check mark. And it takes you to the next day. It's beautiful, free. And I use it to guide my prayer. I read and I'm looking. And I usually stop. If something comes to mind, I don't understand it, or I do, and it's really good. I'm like, wow. And I pause, and it causes me to pray. If it's convicting, I pray about what I'm convicted about. If I'm like in awe of who, like, I read the Psalms, and I read about who great, how great God is, it caused me to stop. I'm like, wow, I don't read to finish. I read to get, to learn, to understand. If I fall a few days behind because I'm reading slowly, I don't care. And with the Uversion app, you could fast forward. You could catch up, for those of you who are really behind. And it just pushes everything forward so you don't get that guilt trip like you're 12 days behind, which is a sign for the 12 tribes of Israel and God's going to condemn you. (laughs) You know, it's... it's, it's Anyway. So read. Um, Second thing, this is going to sound so babyish. Talk about what you're reading. Don't just read. Find someone, if it's a spouse, if it's a friend, just You know what? Tweet it out. Facebook it. Uh, Instagram the page. Get the conversation out. If that helps, talk about it. Why? Learning happens best in community. So I'm going to take you behind the Wizard of Oz. Behind the curtain, okay? When I read these passages in Mark, I have no idea what they mean. Every week. If you think I know what this says, you are sadly mistaken. I don't. I read it and I'm like, okay, I read in every version. I highlight the words that are different to see why did they use that word. And then I read a lot. I read four to 10 different scholars on every passage every week. And then we got a teaching team and there are three people teaching the same passage today. And we email our notes back and forth and we steal each other's stuff and we learn and we grow and I email it out, say, hey, anyone have any thoughts? And then I come up here. So don't, if you come to church, don't think like, I'm never gonna be the guy who knows the Bible. The only reason I'm learning the Bible is because I study the Bible. And that is accessible to everyone. You wanna learn how to study the Bible? Ask someone who's like doing decently in their growth in the Bible. And just say, can you coach me along? What do you do? Pick up their good habits and learn from what they're struggling with. And maybe you could be a blessing to them as well. I know this is so practical, but you know, sometimes we need the basics. Third thing is ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. Do you know when Jesus said, I'm going away, he said, I'm not leaving you alone and I'm gonna give you my very spirit to be with you and in you, and the Holy Spirit is gonna lead you and guide you into all truth. Listen to this. The Holy Spirit's gonna remind you of the words I have said. The Holy Spirit's gonna convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. The Holy Spirit is gonna comfort you in your trouble. The Holy Spirit is gonna give you the power to do what you don't have the power to do. If you are struggling with your Bible understanding, ask God to be God to you. Now, this is where the second guardrail comes in. One guardrail is the scriptures. The second guardrail is the power of God. Some of us do not believe that God can open our minds. That God can make me understand the Bible. That God can give me the ability and insight that I don't possess into myself. And that's where Jesus speaks to the Sadducees. You're in error because you don't know the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. Do you think that God wants you to know who he is? If you don't believe that, of course we're going to come to the Bible with this preconceived idea that Leviticus is strange and I'm just supposed to trudge through. But if we took it, if we read the Bible with an open mind to say, Holy Spirit, if you are God, come to me and I'm struggling, can you help me? You know what he may do to help you? He may bring a friend who knows the Bible a little bit better to kind of bring you along and coach you along. And that's as much the Holy Spirit as you hearing a whisper. This is what it means, Jose. Which let me just tell you, I almost never hear. Almost never. I'm not gonna say never because it's been a few times in my life where I could say with confidence, God somehow got through to me in ways I, I don't understand. Um, where does this sit us, with us as a community? Finally, we wanna be both end. Uh, and by that, the Sadducees messed up because they were off on the Bible and the power of God. And this is where some of us and churches go off. Uh, what do I mean by both ends? Some people or churches are all about the scriptures. So it's all about Bible study and it's all about Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic if you want to really get fancy. And it's all about line upon line and I need depth and it's all about the meat of the word. And, and, and that is good. those people or those churches can lean That's not bad, but they can lean on the academic, can lean on the it's all cognitive, can lean on the propositional truth and not realize that God is outside the box because he made the box. So that, that's an error that could, maybe that's where you lean. Now, other people or other churches are on the other side. It's no, the spirit has come. So it's all experience and it's about worship. It's about tears. It's about emotion. It's about encounter. It's about healing. It's about the here and now. It's about what God does to wow us. And I am here to tell you, God wants to wow you. So which one is it? Is it cognitive or is it emotive? Is it scriptures or is it spirit? I'm here to suggest it's both. And we as a church want to be both end. We want to embrace the scriptures. So we do line by line Bible studies every week. We are not short. Sure if you're expecting a short teaching, listen to the podcast half at a time. Just cut the message in half. Listen to one half one week and the other half the next week. We go long because we think the scriptures are worth Digging into and understanding. But at the same time, we're not just so caught up in our own philosophy that we forget that God is here and God is now. And people that are broken are made right by the Spirit of God now. And so that's where we want to end in the tension. If Jesus is real and the Scriptures are true, where do you lean? And maybe we need to ask in response this morning that God will bring us back to center, which is both and. And. And maybe you're here right now and you don't know the Bible. Uh, God wants to teach you. Maybe you're here right now and you're just broken and hurting and you need an encounter with the living Savior. And I'm here to not just suggest, I'm here to implore you. Jesus is here by his own spirit for you. And so whatever you're going through in the here and the now, God can come and meet with you and bring the wrong to right. Do you believe it? Do you believe it?